Mac Power Users, episode 193, Workflows with Geek Dad. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Excellent. And we have with us a, a guest today from the Geek Dad blog, James Kelly. Hi, James. How are you doing? Hi, David. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, we're so I, glad I, to have you. Absolutely. I've been a fan of the stuff you write over at Geek Dad for some time, as because I am a Geek Dad. And I thought it'd be a lot of fun to have you in to talk a little bit about things. Uh, James, tell us about some of the work you're currently doing before we get started. Sure. I am a, uh, I'm a full-time writer in Atlanta, so I write mainly technology books. But I do write for other websites like geekdad.com. I do some occasional writing for the Make Magazine's blog. And I'm a, I'm a tinker. I'm an inventor, a maker. I, um, I have two small boys, so I'm always learning new skills, teaching myself new things uh, so I can sort of entertain them. And then I write books about them. So it's a really good career for me. And right now, I am, uh, I'm in between books. I try to write about five to six a year, and I just finished up my latest book called Ultimate iPad, which uh, I'm hoping is going to be fun. Wow. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, now, are these uh, print books, digital books, a uh, combination of, of, of which? I mean, because I think I remember in the pre-show you told me that this is your 25th book. Uh, that's all right. I've uh, I started in 2006. I only wrote uh, two books that year, and then the next year I think I went up Slacker. to three. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think I switched over to full time writing in uh, 2010, and since then I've averaged about five books a year. I think six is my max. So yeah, I'm up to 25. The Ultimate iPad book was my 25th book, which is kind of, I guess, the 25th anniversary, 25th book would make sense that it would be an iPad book. And uh, they are print. Most of my books come out in print, although my publishers, um, they are slowly but surely pushing me to accept the ebook standard. Uh, I've got one publisher in particular that told me flat out that 50% of their sales uh, over the last few years have been in the ebooks. And so they're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and they're starting to push authors like myself to just say, hey, um, are you okay doing this as an ebook? Um, and I'm fine with that. I, I really am. Well, the problem is there's increasingly fewer places that sell paper books anymore. I, yeah, I, I got a call uh, maybe a month or two ago from my father-in-law in Mobile, Alabama, and he he said, "Jim, I got bad news for you. The 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 last bookstore in in Mobile closed." And I was distraught because when I go visit my in-laws, I always go by that bookstore. And so, yeah, um, you know. I think we'll always have bookstores. I, I think it'll sort of be like vinyl records uh, where we just – books become sort of a novelty. But um, it, it, it's kind of a, a sad little note in history that we are reaching the end of the print era, and I think we're going to slowly be forced kicking and screaming to go into the ebook uh, era. Yeah, and, and I don't want to bemoan this, but you know, for authors, the, the business model for so long was that you counted on the Barnes and Nobles and all their competitors to buy so many thousand books of whatever went out there, and that's the way you drove a lot of sales. I, I that's what I learned from the books I wrote for a uh, legitimate publisher, as opposed to doing it myself. And uh, now that I write only eBooks, I don't I don't get those sales. I my sales are 
one person decides to buy the book and then I make the sale and I don't get a, you know, 10,000 book order from Barnes and Noble, for instance. But, um, like I said, I think those days are numbered. So you're probably doing the right thing, moving into eBooks, but we don't want to make this show about eBooks. We want to make it about the geek dad and the cool stuff you've been doing with your Macs and your iOS devices. And, uh, you know, just let's chat a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, Geek Dad, <clears throat> geekdad.com, we're, we're about 40 writers in all. And we're called Geek Dad, but we actually have some women on staff. And we, we write about our passions. We have guys on there that write about comic books. We have guys that love board games. Um, we have, you know, everybody has their own specific interests. And then we overlap, obviously. I love board games. I'm playing them with my sons as they get a little older now. And so I, I write about whatever interests me at the time. But lately at Geek Dad, um, just because of the point in time where I am, I have been writing more about things like efficiency and, and, and software that can make your life easier. And, and I've, had, I've had readers comment and send me emails saying, can you tell me a little more about how you do that? And uh, the geek dads enjoy, I, I think my fellow writers enjoy some of the things I write about because I, I ultimately am teaching them ways to use their technology better. And most, I, I, I haven't done an actual inventory, but I believe most of the geek dads do seem to be of the Mac persuasion. And uh, we do swap apps with each other and recommendations and things like that. But uh, but yeah, Geek Dad's a real fun website to work for, to write for. You you can write about whatever you like, but ultimately it does re- it does come back to the geek element. Now, before Katie starts throwing daggers at me, give me uh-huh. one good board game. One good board game. Well, um, you know, Kicks. Are you familiar with Kickstarter, the the uh, the, the crowdsourcing service? Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. There are so many board games that are coming out on Kickstarter that we just can't keep up with them. We get emails almost daily. Just hey, check out my new game. Check out my new game. Some of the ones that have come out recently. Uh, there's a really devious. I, I almost say devious one, but a really strategy and espionage type game called Agents. And the first Kickstarter came out um, last year, and those of us who play it just got our our cards. But it was so successful, they've come out with the Agents Return, which is a brand new Kickstarter. And uh, David, you know, you want a good game, get in, because the guy who runs it is actually offering, you you can get the update, which is expanded cards and stuff, but you can also buy the previous version with all the Kickstarter extras that you, you won't be able to get in the stores. So the agents, that would be a, a really cool strategy game that I would I would recommend to any readers out there that might be looking for something to play. Is that good with a 12-year-old? 12-year-olds could probably figure it out. But I tell you, if you've got kids, especially young kids, um, I just ordered one for my son called Buccaneer Bones. It's got a pirate theme to it. And it's one of those push-your-luck games where you keep rolling dice trying to improve your odds until you either make a mistake or you or you get a score that you want. And uh, he loves it. He, he I think he, um, he he would play it all day if I gave him a chance to. I can feel Katie like fidgeting in her chair right now. So yeah, I'm going to give I'm two so out I'm real quick. Two out real quick. King of Tokyo. I love King of Tokyo. I love King of Tokyo. All right. I'm not going to say anything more because Katie's going to get mad at me. And then the second one is Forbidden Desert, Have which you- is I've, I've never played Forbidden Desert before. This is a game where you, you, you have to win together. You know, it's not a game where there's a winner. The whole team wins or the whole team loses. It's a collaborative game. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Got those two for Christmas for my 12-year-old, and we've been having so much fun. Okay, well, let's move on. Katie's going to get mad I play at me. Risk. 
Hey, David, yeah. David, before yeah. we move before we move on, Risk, you are you are uh, aware, neophyte. David. David, you are aware that Forbidden Desert is a sequel to Forbidden Island, which was the verse game. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. but I just got Forbidden Desert, All so right. that's that's where I'm at. <laughs> Risk, come on, Katie, you gotta you gotta it's, it's gotta classic. get some of these new games. Yeah, yeah I, I know, but these new games are a lot more fun. Yeah. So, James, how did you become the geek dad? I mean, I've, we we get the whole how you became a dad part. We don't need all the details there. We yeah, that's a different show. But um, sure. Yeah, how did you get into to geekdom and and all of that? Well, I've been a geek since middle school. I was the kid who'd played Dungeons and Dragons, and I was the kid who was into comic books. So it never really left me. But interestingly enough, the way I got on with geekdad.com was I wrote an article that uh, I, I was explaining how I was converting my son's coloring books to my iPad. Uh, my son's well, – at the time, it was my only son uh, in 2010 when the first iPad came out. My son was going through coloring books like mad. And so, um, you know, I, I had a scanner, and uh, it, was the, it was the ScanSnap 1300, I believe. And I figured out that I could scan these coloring pages in as uh, PDF files, and then I could let my son use um, an app like GoodReader or there was another one called DoodleBuddy. And he could color away, color away, and it was an easy thing to undo and just start all over. And I wrote an article about it, and it got uh, discovered by the, the editor of Geek Dad, and they invited me to post it, or they wanted to post it on Geek Dad, and that turned into an invitation. This was back in 2011, I believe, and that turned into an invitation to come write for them. And so this uh, was just taking a PDF of the image and letting him draw on it with the drawing tools in a PDF app. You weren't actually like creating fill-in fields on the lines, right? That's right. Basically, it was, it was just it's like scanning or taking a picture of it, but but it was saving it as a PDF and using a tool like GoodReader or yeah. um, or or the other apps that can that can actually draw or or color in he was able to he, I, it was really easy to show him how to use the app he took to it like you know like kids do and he was able to color in his favorite sheets over and over again how old was he at the time he was uh 3 3 yeah, I, can't, <laughs> I can't get over that how these little kids just have no trouble with the iPad zero he learned his alphabet. He learned how to spell – or not spell. He learned his sounds uh, all using an app that we had found for the iPad. My wife wasn't completely sold. When I got the first iPad and I started downloading all these apps for kids, um, <laughs> she was a little nervous. You know, here's an electronic device. Kids are so – you know, are we supposed to let our kids, you know, use electronics? And But, but amazingly enough – if you if you you know games are great for kids, but if you find educational apps that are actually really good, um, they're they're a boon. And I watched my son learn some amazing things with that iPad, and so he's he's more of a pro at using it than my wife is. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a little kid, I had an Atari twenty six hundred, which tells you how old I am. And uh, my parents or my my older sister bought me some educational games for it. And they had like a math game where it would put a, a um, addition problem on the screen and you would take that little Atari joystick and you would slide over to the sum line and you'd push it up or down to change the digit. And that was supposed to be fun. Those games <laughs> sucked, you yes, know. But now, I mean, when I look at the stuff that in the, the children in my family, my kids are older now, but even the smaller kids that I'm related to. There are some just amazing applications out there. Which one did you use to teach your son uh, the sounds and how to read with? 
You were to ask me that, and that's been a few years back. It, oh, um, well, see, I guess it has been now, hasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it's been a while, and I, I could probably dig it up for you, and i tell you what I will, and you can put it in the notes for the uh, for the podcast. But i tell you, the one my son really did recently, I can tell you this one. There's one called Meteor Math, and basically it's like asteroids, but you have to tap two meteors that when, they, when the numbers that are on the meteors add together, it equals a certain value. And uh, it's a timed game, and my son spent weeks playing that, and all of a sudden, he was adding double digits in his head, and he's a first grader. And, yeah. and his, teacher, his teacher said, Decker has a real thing for math. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, we're doing 1 plus 2 and 2 plus 4, and he's doing 13 plus 12 and 10 plus 15. And I'm telling you, I watched him do it. It came from that Meteor Math app. Yeah, I uh, think that's just fantastic. Well, that sounds like a, a good entry for Geek Dad. Uh, you know what? Um, it probably deserves. I, I believe I have written about Meteor Math for Geek Dad. But you know what, David? It's uh, interesting enough. You mentioned the Atari a minute ago. I, I run Stella, which is an application. I run it on my MacBook Air, and I use the AirPlay to throw it up on my TV. And I let my son play these classic Atari twenty six hundred games like Adventure. We played uh, Pitfall just the other day. He and I. Um, on this 50-inch LCD pan- TV, we were playing these classic uh, 1970s-style uh, Atari all right, games. All right, Jim, Jim, you just got to stop right there. Oh, no. We now, back up. now we've gone we down a rabbit hole. No, no. There, we're going to talk about productivity stuff later, Katie Floyd. Just relax. But uh, what, boys in your what game. are you talking <laughs> about? Stop and just tell me what you're talking about. Okay. There is a, there is a program for the Mac called Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A. Just Google it. Type type Stella Atari. And like Stella. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, yeah. Yeah, Stella. Or like David Wayne's, like David Wayne's little series, right? Right. Stella. And and you can download Stella and run it on your on your Mac. And there, there are sources out there where you can get the old Atari ROMs. And uh, I have probably 100 Atari 2600 cartridges in my possession, so I don't feel like I'm breaking the law here. I have a ROM of the games I own. And you, you, you download the ROMs from various websites that have them. Stella opens them, and it, and it looks like you're playing Atari on your Mac. Um, you can use the arrow keys to simulate left, right, up, down. But what I do is I actually have a Bluetooth uh, arcade controller that I, I'm a, I'm a total geek. Um, it talks to my Mac, and it, it has a, it, go ahead. Where does one get a Bluetooth arcade controller? Well, here's the geek data me again. There's a website out there called Adafruit, A-D-A-F-R-U-I-T.com. If you go to Adafruit.com and you search for Bluetooth arcade, you'll find that they sell a little kit that comes with this little, I mean, it's tiny. It looks about the size of a postage stamp. You buy the joystick, which is, I think, $10 or so, and you buy some buttons, which are about $3 each. And I bought this little box at Michael's Craft Store, and I drilled the holes and mounted the buttons and, you know, wired it up. And, yeah, it, it requires a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of electrical knowledge, but there's instructions on Adafruit for how to do it. And it communicates to the Mac through Bluetooth. It's recognized as a Bluetooth device, and once it once it pairs up, it works just like a joystick. And so the Stella software, when I open it up, I use uh, AirPlay to throw it up on my TV. And then the arcade controller talks to my Mac through Bluetooth. And my son and I sit there on the couch, no wires. 
and we're playing these Atari 2600 games. Now, it also plays, um, there, there's a, you can also download just standard arcade games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and those kind of games, and we play those too. All right, James, you're going to have to send me the link because I'm looking at Adafruit, and there are so many products here. I don't even know where to start. But, uh, I'll get it so for you. So now, are there arcade buttons? Is it like the classic arcade buttons, you know, the round ones that we used to mash when we were a kid at the arcade? Or what? tell me more about these controls. Yeah, I'm, there's a whole industry out there uh, devoted to building your own arcade. And I actually yeah. built one a few years back. It's uh, six feet tall. It's like, It looks like something you'd see when you walk in an old 80s arcade. And you you buy the buttons and the joysticks, and the buttons feel exactly like what they did. You know, to those of us who played arcade games, they have that 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 tactile feel. And uh, the joysticks, you know, there's all kinds of joysticks out there, and um, you just have to have a little bit of a, a knowledge about how to wire them up. But honestly, they've made them almost to where you just connect wire one to to port two, and and it's it's that easy. Yeah, Wait, it sounds like a fun fun project if you like your son is uh, into electronics a little bit you could even do it with your kid yeah there's a great book out there called build your own arcade and uh it's got a website devoted to it and thousands i mean i'm not kidding there are thousands of arcade custom handmade arcade cabinets that people have made and they send their photos in and say hey here's mine and um it, there the, the the book comes with the plans it tells you how to wire it up it's it's really very well done What's in so, your custom so, arcade cabinet? My arcade cabinet is called Saucer Attack. It's um, it's got the the glow in the dark. Have you ever seen those lightning effect circles where you put your hand on them and the lightning follows your fingertips? Yeah. I actually I actually instead of having a coin insert where you put in your coin to play a game, I don't have that on the front of my arcade. I have that plate that has a green electrical thing, and it's the the, the cabinet is painted uh, this alien green. And I have dozens of uh, games that I play on it. If you if you play, have a classic arcade game, I've probably got it installed on there. You I think you need to send us a photo. I, I will. I will send you a photo. And, yeah. uh, David, it's not for sale. You got Discs of Tron on there? Because that one, I used to rock that game. Um, I do have it, and I do have a spinner on my arcade, and I have a trackball in my arcade. But I've not played Discs of Tron only because... Um, I mean, I, I have my favorites, and I tend to play those. What are those? Let me just real quick. Um, I like Joust. I mean, I'm I'm oh, old, yeah, I'm old school. One. I'm definitely yeah, old school too. here. Um, I like uh, Donkey Kong. Um, there's a okay on Donkey Kong. Can you make the level three jump? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, you can. It's very tricky, and uh, yeah, I, I think so. I've maybe done it twice in my life. I mean, it's very. It's all about timing. All right. That's the sound. You hear that? That's the sound of all our listeners just tuning out right now. <laughs> we, we better change direction. <laughs> but the, um, oh man, I could talk to you about this stuff. James, I think you and I would get along great. Too bad you're on the other side of the country. We'd have fun together. But the, um, uh, so getting back to this, this device though, you have um, downloaded the ROMs onto your, your Mac and you're running Stella. And then you've cooked up your own Bluetooth joystick. Could someone out there, if they wanted to uh, do this without having to build their own controller <clears throat> let's see you can uh there are there are i have seen arcade controllers that you just plug into the usb port um i could I, i'll have to hunt them down for you david but i know they exist and it's basically you're just buying a box with an art with uh, maybe two or three buttons and a joystick 
and it connects to your USB. The reason I like this one is it's wireless. It connect, it communicates through the Bluetooth. So that was the key to me. I didn't want to be tied to my Mac with a USB cable. Uh, I wanted to be wire wireless. Yeah, I have an app on my iPad called Atari's Greatest Hits, um, and it's got a lot of those old classic 2600 games on it. But the controls are kind of wonky because you're controlling it from the from the iPad itself. You know, there's this you know virtual controller that's that are pixels on the screen, and that's kind of an interesting story. Anyway, Apple, I believe it was with the release of iOS seven, was the first time they put support in it for game controllers, and we've had a couple manufacturers now release third-party game controllers for the iPad and the iPhone. Some of them are kind of slick. You can pop an iPhone right into one of them, and it kind of feels like an old-school handheld game. But nobody has really capitalized on it, and you know, it just hasn't really become a thing yet. You know, I um, I built this uh, little arcade controller not uh, – I built it two weekends ago. So I really haven't – we really have been just playing our, the uh, Atari games with it and a couple, a couple of the old classic arcade games. I actually do have that arcade cl- – the Atari Classics for my iPad as well. I bought it a couple years ago. I haven't had a chance to try this Bluetooth controller with it, but I will do it uh, tomorrow, and I'll let you know whether it works or not. Do you think, talking about all this, do you think there's a market? I mean, obviously there's a market for gaming, but we just saw, you know, for example, the Amazon Fire TV come out with this dedicated Bluetooth gaming controller. And, you know, obviously that's an Android-based platform, but everybody's kind of waiting to see what Apple's next step is, particularly with the Apple TV. And we've seen the iPad and the iPhone as as great gaming devices. And obviously what you guys have been talking about so far have been, you know, very niche, very classic type games, you know. But do you think there's a, a need for the more casual gamer um, and, and Apple to maybe fill some of this or maybe even Amazon with the Fire TV by adding some additional controllers and opening it up to, to iOS games? You know, my, my wife, she likes to play some games. She'll play Miss Pac-Man or Centipede. But, uh, and she is a gamer. She plays uh, a lot of these popular games on her i on her iPad Mini, such as uh, the Candy Crush game, which I'm not a big fan of, but she loves it. I think there are casual gamers out there. Um, most of the games that I would think casual gamers play, they they tend to not be the games that you necessarily need a controller for, or you know, like an arcade stick or anything like that. But I have wondered, you know, when Apple might ever release some sort of controller to for whether it's for Mac or, or iPad or what have you, and we haven't seen it yet. And um, I don't know if that's just Apple being Apple and saying, hey, you know, let somebody else do it. It's, it's not our thing, or maybe they do have something, you know, up their sleeve. I, I would love to see an Apple. I would love to see Apple's take on a game controller. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. But even more than a game controller, just a an app development platform for the Apple TV that would allow other people to make games. And I'm sure there would be other people making more controllers if that were the case. And you know, based on the lukewarm reception for controllers so far, I'm I'm thinking Apple's probably going to say, "Well, let them let the outside vendors do it because it's not big enough for us." You know, I. I th- I think I read or heard just recently a rumor that maybe the next Apple TV revision might have Siri being offering voice control. So they, if that's true, they're kind of heading in the direction that the Amazon Fire is going. If they if they add voice control, that that could that could very well help a lot of people move over to that platform. And of course, once you get more people 
using Apple TV, then then the question does become what else what else can we do do with it? And games is an obvious one. That is an obvious lacking. It's obviously lacking in games uh, when you when you look at all the uh, the apps or the icons in Apple TV. There are no games. Yeah, it's interesting. I know that Apple has got something going on with TV, and if you read the people who seem to be like in the know on this stuff, it seems like they've got a lot of engineering talent invested in it. So I'm sure at some point we'll see something. But until then, uh, I'm I'd be happy to play with James's little homebrewed Bluetooth controller and get Adventure. You know, Adventure was the game, the first game I ever. <laughs> yeah, it had Easter eggs. It had you were a dot. And your sword was a little arrow. I, I remember one Christmas spending all day playing that little game. I think I could still do the mazes in it, even though it's been like 30 years. David, I hadn't played Adventure in 10, 15 years. And we plugged it in. We uh, we opened Stella. I ran Adventure. And I went through the maze of the Black uh, Castle without the even – The Red Dragon was in there, Garden the Goblet. I went through the maze like it was yesterday. It all came – I mean, literally, the maze isn't all that complicated, but I knew it I knew it by memory. I played it so much as a kid that it was in permanent memory. Well, um, let's um, – I guess let's move on to something that doesn't involve people being young in the 70s and <laughs> talk about something else. Sure. But before we do that, I'd like to talk about our first sponsor, and that's Backblaze. Um, we're really pleased to have Backblaze as a sponsor on the show. For a long time, and if you go listen to the archives of the Mac Power users, I was against online backup systems. And the reason Crazy. was the up- – Well, I'm sorry. It, it, was, there, it was difficult back then because – I mean, the up speeds were so slow on the internet connections. It took so long for it to happen, and it just felt like it was more trouble than it was worth. Um, about a year and a half, I think almost two years ago now, I decided to get serious about it, and I signed up with Backblaze. And I've been really happy with them for the whole time. I mean, it's just a great place. It's unlimited and unthrottled um, backup. So for $5 a month, you can back up everything on your Mac. They've already stored over 100 petabytes of data backup on their system. And this is a, just a really simple-to-use program. You can just install it, and it does the rest. It's built for the Mac. In fact, there's some former Apple people involved behind the whole thing. Uh, at this point, they estimate they have restored over 5 billion files to people who have backed up, so you know you're going to be just fine. They have an iOS app that allows you to access and share all of your files, and you can restore one file or you can restore all of them. They've got it covered all the way. I, you know, the, the, the application itself is native on the Mac, so that makes it work really great. I, as soon as I set this up, I knew I had the right solution. It took me very little time to get all of my stuff backed up, and now it's constantly backed up. Now, that's not my only solution, but it does solve that critical component of an off-site backup, and all of this for just $5 a month. I, I continue to love the stuff these guys do. They were actually at Macworld, and I'm sure some of the people out there uh, saw the booth at Macworld where they had some of their their proprietary machines that they've built to cover your backup. And it was just fascinating to see the way they've engineered this to protect all of your data. Well, they've just got an amazing infrastructure there. And then I think they, they open source a lot of it. And, you know, they, they were saying that they've got, you know, government institutions and people from all over the place coming to them and, and looking at, at just how they're storing these massive, massive quantities of data. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So they're saying, Hey, everybody, try, here's our spec. See if you can shoot holes in it. And guess what? 
they, it just makes them better. So it's, it's just a really great way to do your online backup. And uh, for a long time now, listeners have been writing me asking which one, and Backblaze is the one that I stick with. I'm going to be using it now for a, a long time. That uh, you know, once you get your your data back up, it's just real simple. I was at a friend's, uh, a friend of ours started a, a small business, and we went to their facility a couple weeks ago, and I was asking her about her backup system, and she had the you know she had the drive attached to her Mac, and I said, well, what happens if someone breaks in and takes your backup in your Mac? And she just got this blank look on her face. So I said, give me your credit card. I signed her up for Backblaze while I was there, and she's very happy now. You just look at the little icon up in your menu bar, and you know you're good. You can also adjust it yourself. So if you think you're going to need you know your data for other reasons, you want to like slow down the Backblaze upload you can do it right in the application it's really easy to use and i don't know what else to say except if you want to get your backup done right head over to backblaze give them five dollars a month and you have this problem solved and david i I think you told them they can probably give it a try for free and if they've already got their backup covered because i know they're good you know mac power users listeners are usually on top of it they can even buy it for a friend or a family member because you probably know somebody who needs it but the URL to go to, again, is backblaze.com slash MPU, and that lets them know that, that we sent you, and we really appreciate their support of the show. Yeah, so everybody go get yourself backed up with Backblaze. Thanks. I've been using them, David, for about a month. And uh, Oh, really? I, so how long did it take you to get your first backup done? It was about two weeks uh, not quite two weeks. What was interesting was, um, and this is funny, I, I mentioned them in my recent book, The uh, Ultimate iPad. I don't, I don't recommend software easily in my books. I mean, it's very tricky because you never know if a program is going to be available when the book comes out or, or if there might be something better. But I was so sold by Backblaze that I told my editor um, when we were doing the chapter on backups that that was going to be the service that I featured in the chapter. Um, you know, the five dollars a month was was easy. Um, I have about I have about seven to eight hundred gigabytes of data that uh, it took about took almost two weeks to back up, and now it just does the incremental, and I you know I, I love it. Yeah, and once you've got the the full backup done, the incremental takes no time at all. Yeah, I you know there's a you you. Uh, there's a pause button that uh, if you if you do decide you want to you know play a game or if you need if you need your processor really uh, to be dedicated to a particular application, I remember I clicked the pause button quite often when I knew I was going to be doing some things, and it paused. Or if you're about to sit down and do a podcast, right? And it pauses it for I think two hours, and then it, it, even if you're not there, it turns back on and it starts right back up. And um, it did. It it even gave me a message. It said, "Hey, your your backup is done, and now you're on incremental mode." Very cool. Well, let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, iPad Power Tricks is the new book that you have. Is it out or is it when, – when's the release date? It's actually called The Ultimate iPad. and that might, Oh, okay. Ultimate iPad. <laughs> the Ultimate iPad, iPad Power Tricks is what I wrote in my notes. That's right. And, and it is. It's full of tricks. The The book is interesting. It's been a couple years coming. Um, I, I do a lot of weird things with my iPad, and I have a lot of family members and friends and editors who have seen me do some some things with my iPad, and I always get the, whoa, you know, you can do that, or how do you do that? And my editor called me uh, maybe six or seven months ago and said, okay, we have to do a book on this. And we filled it with just tons and tons of 
tips and advice on how to use special apps and and scanners and uh, other other so- other applications to just turn your iPad into what I really call it's we call it the ultimate iPad, but I also call it your your ultimate personal assistant. Well, can you can you give us some a sneak peek or give us a couple couple yeah, of tease us a little tips bit. out of the book? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot, I carry a lot of books and a lot of magazines on my iPad, and I have a 32 gigabyte. And people people they also see how many movies I have on my iPad, and they think, how in the world do you do this? And I tell them, I say, oh well, my iPad has unlimited storage, and they kind of look at me crazy, and. When I tell them the solution I use, they still give me the crazy look like they don't understand. And so in the book, I, I show readers, I, I tell them that there's two ways you can do this. You can use a cloud service like Dropbox or Box.net, or you could use a service that allows you to connect a, a hard drive, like a two terabyte or a three terabyte hard drive, to the internet from your home computer. And then your iPad simply accesses that hard drive uh, and, and the files you need. And so, so if you have that set up, you could put all your movies, all your photos, all your books, everything on that three terabyte or two terabyte hard drive, and then just access it as you need it. Now, it does require an internet connection, obviously, but um, you know, if you have that, you you don't have to, know, you no longer have to stress about running out of hard drive space or storage space on your iPad. You just throw it out there and uh, and do it. And I think anyone who's used Dropbox or a cloud-based service kind of has a glimpse of, of, of how it would work. If you can put something in Dropbox and you have an internet connection, you can get to it. Now, I, I do this with uh, two, two tools that I use, well, three tools that I actually use for this. Uh, I have a Dropbox account. I have a transporter at my house. And then I also have this, uh, I think Kingston makes it, it's, it's called this mobile light. It's, it's this card reader that I take when I travel and it's a, a mobile card reader. So you can, so I can use it on an airplane. I can, I can fill up this external hard drive with a, with a bunch of uh, movies or whatever I want to fill up. And then maybe where I don't have true internet access, I can just access them off that drive. But you do it a little bit differently. My understanding is you use a Pogo plug and I've, I've heard of that product because it's been around for a really long time, but I must admit, I'm really not familiar with it. So can you talk us kind of through that workflow and maybe tell us a little bit about the Pogo plug and what it can do? Sure. The um, when I first got introduced to Pogo Plug back uh, maybe a year or two ago, it was a hardware solution. Basically, it was a it was a small device that you plugged into your router, uh, but with an Ethernet connection, and then you connected an external hard drive, like a you know a one terabyte, two terabyte hard drive. You connected it to the Pogo Plug hardware, and it allowed you to access anything on that hard drive over the internet. And just recently, probably within the last year, Pogo Plug, they still have the hardware solution, and I still use it with a one terabyte hard drive I have. But what was really, really, what, what put the nail in the coffin for me to go full Pogo Plug was they started selling a service. It's a one-time purchase. It's about $30. It's a piece of software that you install on your computer. And basically what it does is you can specify a hard drive or any, any storage device that is connected to that computer. That means a USB card, an SD you know, card, or, or even an external hard drive. It will all be visible, or whatever you choose to be visible, it will, it will be visible over the Internet. And so I, I installed that software. I connected a 3-terabyte hard drive, 
and I just loaded it up. And that's how I my iPad accesses that Pogo plug uh, connected hard drive, and that's where I get everything. And and the interesting part is. With Backblaze, Backblaze, the $5 a month is unlimited. It will back up not only your hard drive, but the small print. If you read the small print, it says it will also back up any external hard drives that you have connected to that computer. So my three terabyte hard drive, which holds everything I have, is also being backed up by Backblaze. So, and it's putting it up there, and then that gives you another vector to get to that data. There's a funny story with Pogo Plug. I, I had a movie, uh, a large movie, stored on Pogo Plug, and I knew I was going to be somewhere where I didn't have internet access. So I got on tech support and I asked Pogo Plug, I said, listen, I can only watch the movie through the Pogo Plug app. I want to be able to download it to my iPad so that I can view it. In, in, this, in this case, I wanted to open it in Goodreader. And, and they, they told me it cannot be done. When someone tells me something cannot be done, I get really aggravated because I'm an engineer. I go, I go, and I find a way to make it happen. And the funny thing is, you can do it. If you open up the Pogo Plug app and you access the movie or file that you want, there's a share button. And if you have Goodreader installed on your iPad, and I, t- I show this in the book, if you click, yeah. if you click the share button, one of the options to send the file to is Goodreader. Now, it takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes to download the movie, but I was able to pull a movie down to my iPad and watch it offline, and I, it was so enjoyable to email back the Pogo Plug tech support and say, uh, guys, you can do it. I'm kind of surprised they didn't know that. I mean, if they put the share button in their app, that's uh, it's not like you had to hack it open, you know? Well, the question I originally posed to him was, I said, listen, in Goodreader, there's a way to connect to services like Dropbox and Box.net and, and pull in files straight into Goodreader. Can I do that with PogoPlug? And they said, oh, no, no, our, you know, our API is closed. And no, you can't. There's no way to, um, to pull movies from PogoPlug into another app. And that was where it ended. Now, somebody there might be aware of it, but as far as their tech support, they, they just didn't know it. Or the person I was dealing with it wasn't aware of it. But it was kind of hidden. It took me a while to figure it out that you could uh, click the share button and, and, and choose Goodreader. And it is a little slower than, like, for instance, if I download something, load something from Dropbox, it's pretty quick. It'll take me three or four minutes to download a movie. For some reason, the Pogo Plug app is a little bit slower. It might take what would, would, would take three minutes with Dropbox takes about ten minutes with Pogo Plug, but it still works. So well, I would imagine thing. it's it's because you're going through so many you're going through whatever connection your iPad is on, and then you're going back through your home internet connection. Whereas with Dropbox, you're going through their servers. Yeah, that that that's that makes sense. I just uh, to me, waiting ten minutes to download a movie when I know I'm not going to have internet access, it, it was well worth it. I do a similar thing with Transporter, and I use the Transporter app. Like, um, and generally, I do it with PDFs and comics and books. When I travel, I just don't find I watch movies. You know, I, I've yeah. been doing this for years, where I load up my iPad or even before that, my iPhone with movies, and I just don't watch them. So I've kind of got out of the habit of doing that, or really worrying about getting access to video on the road. But often, I wanted like. I've got all these books and PDFs and comics on my transporter and it's the same thing. I open it up and then it it goes there. Another advantage with the transporter is they do have an open API. So like um, chunky reader and some of the other apps that are out there will, will hook into a transporter like they will Dropbox. 
Well, I, you know, I use Dropbox to store things I need always. Um, yeah. But I have I have scanned so many books. Uh, I have an SV six hundred, which is a ScanSnap uh, book book scanner. You you lay the book open on the desktop, it scans it, and then it flattens it. So it even removes the curve or the curl of the page, and it flattens it out. I have scanned so many of my books. That uh, they they can't all fit on the iPad, and I don't want to I don't want to store them in Dropbox. So I put those in Pogo Plug, and now whenever I need a reference book or access to a book, I just pull it in from Pogo Plug into GoodReader, and, and GoodReader is my go-to app. It's what I use for everything. Yeah, it, that really is a nice scanner. I got to play with one of those at MacWorld, and it's just such a great way to digitize books. Let's go there for a minute. Um, uh, Katie, have you ever have you got into the habit of trying to take um, paper books and turn them into digital copies. Have you tried that yet? I have, but I must admit I'm not very good with an exacto knife. Uh, see, I have, I have completely got into that now. I, cause I, I don't keep that many hard books. Maybe I guess it's natural for me to be this way as the guy who wrote the paperless book, but um, I've got some books around here that I just wanted to have digitally and I didn't want to go buy them again because I've already paid for them and I got the razor blade out and I cut the pages out and stuck it in my IX 500 and, you know, I have it run the OCR as soon as it puts it in and it's remarkable how fast you can, you can digitize a book. All right. So what's your, what's your secret to cutting the spine off a book? Tell tell me, tell me your technique. (laughs) Uh, I have a really good, uh, like James, I have done some woodworking in the past and I have some really nice sharp blades that are used for scoring lumber. And I've got one that's got kind of like a hook knife to it. I think it's an exacto product, but it's got kind of like an inverted hook, almost like an old fisherman's hook. And it's got a nice solid handle, so you can run it right down the spine of the book, and it does a great job. I, I'm and gonna, if it's not a, I think maybe I'll just ship you a box of books, and Katie if you Floyd. could, and if you could you, um, share back the PDFs with me, that would be great. Okay, Katie, Katie, I, I can I can help you with that. There's a okay. there's a website out there called one the numeral one one dollar scan dot com. Okay. You you send them your hardback books or your paperback or your magazines. They scan them. They send you they send you a link where you can download the PDFs and they shred the books because that that keeps them sort of legal. Um, I've used them and they do they do a decent job. Um, but I I'm going to do David one better and I'm going to tell you about this is how I do it. I have a lot of magazines that I've collected over the years that have articles that I don't want to lose. Um, but I needed to be able to scan them, and scanning a magazine is not easy unless you cut the spine off. If you go to a FedExKinkos.com, they charge one fifty dollar fifty per cut, and magazines they can stack about six to ten magazines on top of one another and make one cut all at once. This is how I do my magazines. I they charge me a dollar fifty, and I, it's, it's, I scan them in on, on my own time. Nice. That's, a, that's good. I never thought of that. You know, what I do with a magazine is rarely do I want a whole magazine scanned, but there may be an article or two, and I'll just tear out those pages and scan those. Now, I, I rip I rip magazine articles out of like Mac Life and Mac World. I, I do those constantly, but I do have a magazine called um, Family Handyman. I've gotten it for six years, and it's, you know, it's a DOI home repair type articles, and 
those, I don't want to lose any of that. I scan them in with OCR and I, they don't take up a lot of space. And whenever I need to say, do a, if I ever needed to replace my toilet, I could go into the search and type toilet repair and I'll find every article in any family handyman that's ever related to toilet repair. Huh? And do you OCR, you OCR them when you bring, bring them in, right? I do OCR the family handyman uh, magazines because I scan them in almost in their entirety. But for the articles that I rip out, like from a Mac world, and I scan in those, I usually just type in a very descriptive file name uh, you know, that I can search for. I have to wonder – Go ahead, Katie. I was just going to say, I'm just going to mention this because we're going to get email. If I, I don't, we're going to get email anyway, is I do try to be conscious about not scanning in paper that is otherwise easily accessible elsewhere. You know, like a classic is manuals. I try to keep manuals to certain things around the house. Well, if if you just type in, you know, whatever the model number of your refrigerator is in manual in Google, you'll find the PDF manual or, you know, same with most of your electronics. I mean, certainly that's not the case with books. Some magazine articles that you'll, you'll probably be able to find online. I, I just try to make it a point not to scan when I can just, you know, grab it in Evernote in a web browser or something like that. And, and as James was talking about it, I was thinking, you know, if I want to repair a toilet, I go to YouTube and I yeah, say, I just fixed repair. mine. And um, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but uh, I kind of reversed on my own argument because I was thinking as much as I've gotten rid of paper, I've got this beloved set of fine woodworking magazines that I collected over 30 years. And I, I don't have every issue. And I, frankly, I haven't been an active subscriber for some time, but I've got some really old stuff with James Krenov in it. And, you know, some of the woodworkers that I really admire, I could see myself taking those into Kinko's and getting them um, torn open and going and, and, and scanning those in. Yeah. But maybe, I, what I was going to say is. Maybe you just is, uh, need the, the big uh, Johnny Five scanner. Well, maybe. But uh, but I was also thinking, are we weirdos? I mean, are guys like James and I weirdos? I, I don't know how yes. many people are there that are going to take an X-Acto knife to a book to scan it. We are the weirdos. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I do things that people might not go that extra mile to do, but they still want to know how I did it just in case they ever change their mind. And, you know, the scanner, I tell you, I'm a scanner freak. I've, I own three or four of them. I use them for different uh, tasks. And without a scanner in my life, I, I don't know what I would do. Wow. But you're, there's you're also, preaching to the choir, brother. Yeah, there, there's also a place for keeping some of these things. I, I have two full bookshelves of, of hardback books, and I am consciously trying not to add to them unless it's a, a book that I really feel is an important book that I'm, I'm going to treasure and that I, I want to keep almost more as a keepsake than anything else after I read it. But, you know, I understand kind of getting rid of the paperbacks and, and taking the reference material and scanning that in. But there's still something about having a hardback book on my shelf that, that I really like. I mean, as as I sit here, I'm I'm looking at, and some of these are, you know, from my childhood, but I'm sitting here looking at a hardback copy of, of Curious George and I'm, you know, I've got you know, some biographies of people that I admire. And, and David, I've got your book sitting here on my bookshelf. And I'm not going to take the X-Acto Blade to those. Yeah, I haven't taken an X-Acto Blade to my book yet, but I actually have a PDF of it. So I kind of cheat that way. But the um, uh, recently, I faced that exact question. Uh, when I was in college, there was this copy of Albert Camus' Myth of Sisyphus that I used to carry around with me. 
And I thought I was very bohemian in those days. And, you know, it really was a good book. It came to me at the right time in life. And I had written all these things in the margins. And uh, the other day I opened it up again. I hadn't looked at it in 20 years ago, but I was, I was just looking through the books that I've kept. And I saw all my margin notes were kind of fading out after all the years. And there's part of me that would like to go back and read that book again when I'm an old man. And just kind of see what the college kid wrote in the margins and how idiotic he was, you know, right? And um, and I was worried that I was going to lose all those margin notes. So I I thought about it and I got out the exacto blade and I and I shredded it. I mean, I, I tore it open, scanned the whole thing, and just threw the pages away. So now I have a digital copy. Now, Katie, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you and say I have I have about four bookcases in my office just full of books that I will never sell, get rid of. I will never shred them. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a book lover and most of what I've digitized, I guess, are, are reference books and, and books that I just, I read once, but I want to keep them, but I just don't want to, I don't want to use, use up my storage space. But you know, there, there are a number of books that cannot ever go the digital route. I, I would almost argue there are books out there that, uh, because of the format they're in, they can't, that would be hard to digitize. I read one recently. It was the J.J. Abrams book called S, the letter S. It comes with a bunch of ephemera tucked inside the pages, postcards and things like that. You can't take a book like that and not, and you can't take a book like that and sell it as an ebook, in my opinion, and, and it have the same effect. Well, and I think that's what people are reaching out for now. Um, you know, the idea of uh, books being a unique product as opposed to just something that everybody's always working with. So they're going to get, they're going to become more niche, the books that actually get printed. And that's a good example of, of that trend in my mind. Yeah. Well, Hey, I want to dig some more in, into some of these tips maybe that you, you talked about in your book and maybe some of your more productivity tips. It sounds like we're, we're heading down that way anyway. But before we do, I want to take a quick break and talk about our second sponsor for this episode. And that is our friends over at the Omni Group. And I want to talk about my favorite productivity tool. And I don't know where I would be without OmniFocus. And currently, I am probably using OmniFocus on the iPhone almost more than, I think probably more than any other instance of OmniFocus out there right now. Now, the beauty about OmniFocus is they've got versions for the Mac, versions for the iPhone, versions for the iPad. And uh, hey, if if you want to check out OmniFocus version two for the Mac, I believe it is now in public beta. Um, wow, it is, it is really coming along and it is really going to be something special. But I don't want to talk too much about that until it gets released. And I think we're getting close on that. But you know, this, the sync between OmniFocus for Mac and iPhone and iPad, you know, everything works perfectly with their OmniSync server and all of my data is everywhere, which means I really can use any of their products. And I've really been using the iPhone quite a bit because I haven't been in the office so much the last couple of weeks. And it's really hard to stay on top of your tasks sometimes when you don't have that opportunity to sit down at your computer, to plan, to organize to go through and do a thorough review and see what have I got going, what have I got coming, what has to get done, and, and what's on the horizon. And when uh, the folks at Omni really revamped the the iPhone app with OmniFocus 2 for iPhone, they took a lot of that into consideration. So, for example, when you open up the application, you see the forecast view at the very top of the screen. So it says, it, it tells you, you know, what 
what do you've got coming up not only today what do you have that's been going on in the past that maybe you you need to give some attention to and what's coming up in the future in the next couple of days to give you a, an idea at a glance of of what your week going to be like you can also immediately I lo- yeah i love that forecast oh i know and it's it's coming in version 2 of uh of omnifocus for mac too they've already announced that but you can also quickly see what's in your inbox or even drill deeper and say okay well what is going on today and what's going on tomorrow and when you click on the today view you can see what what tasks you've got today what tasks you've got coming up and, the, and then also get a quick view at your calendar to figure out and try to plan well, maybe am I go- when am I going to do these tasks? And Omni makes it very easy to try to figure out um, exactly what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. But perhaps one of the features that I use the iOS app for most is collecting tasks and collecting thoughts. So I'll do this quite a bit with Siri because OmniFocus can integrate with Siri reminders where I'll tell Siri to um, remind me to double check on uh, when such and such paper was due or uh, remind me to, uh, you know, call David about a lunch appointment or remind me to do this or remind me to do that. Whenever something pops up in my head, I just dictate out a quick reminder and it pops into to OmniFocus because I've got my Siri uh, connected to OmniFocus and that's very easy to set up. David, you've even got a video about it. But you can also add quick items either through the OmniFocus app itself. You can add attachments. You can even take a picture of something or do a, a more in-depth audio recording if you need something more than a quick reminder. Um, you know, Maybe you want to dictate out some notes on a project that you can sit down and, and come back to later. You can do all of that with OmniFocus on the iPhone. And then as you go throughout your day getting stuff done, my favorite part is checking it off and then never seeing it again because it's done and it's all gone. So I've really been just using OmniFocus for the iPhone just so much recently. Uh, you can check it out. It's available in the iOS app store. So it's available in iTunes. Uh, it's $19.99 and it is worth every penny. If you go over to OmniFocus.com, uh, you can check out a, a quick introductory video that'll give you an idea and an overview of what it is. If you're already using OmniFocus, you're probably pretty familiar with the getting things done approach and strategy to things. And it will sync right in with all of your other OmniFocus information. And if you're not already using OmniFocus, well, you can head over to Omni's site over at omnigroup.com and download a free trial and see what it's all out. And while you're there, try the OmniFocus 2 beta test for Mac. It's it's a public beta now. Of course, make sure you do have a backup of, if you're already using OmniFocus because it is still a public beta. Uh, but I think you'll be really impressed with what you see. Yeah, also so. check out my videos. I did a nice video series on OmniFocus. So if you're having trouble getting getting used to it or you just want some help with it, uh, that stuff still works even with the version 2 coming. Yeah. Well, thanks, I Omni. I love our sponsors. Yeah, we have some great sponsors. And OmniFocus is saving me every day. So, James, um, what are some of the other, other items or workflows kind of things you, you covered in this new book that you're real excited about? Well, I've got uh, I've got chapters that show you how to monitor your online finances, not just look checking your bank statement, but actually uh, consolidating all your bills into a single location uh, and logging in and being able to pay those uh, with with one login. Um, I so what what are you doing that with? That's services that's that? a service called Manila dot com M A N I L L A. And um, I've been with Manila 
maybe two years, year and a half to two years now. And my wife wasn't completely sold on it at first, but then she started seeing how I would just log into Manila. I would get all my bills that were due. It, it organizes it in, you know, like these bills are due in seven days. These bills are due in up to 15 days. And you can choose, you can, you, know, you just click on one and you say, pay the bill. And what it does is it it's sort of a password uh, manager because it, it takes all your account information and it it's it's secure uh, and and it it logs in for you so that once you log into Manila you can basically pay all your bills just in one place without having to log into your gas bill your phone bill your cable bill. So it's kind of like a a third party bill pay service. It is. As opposed to doing it through your bank website. It is. And it's free. You know, they, they make their money, uh, I guess, by a percentage. The way I understand it is, you know, they have companies that come to them and say, hey, we want to get rid of the paper. We want to we want all the customers to pay you know, online or electronically. And so they negotiate their fees uh, with those companies. So it's totally free to customers. And again, I've been using it for about a year and a half, maybe two years now, and I've never had any problem with it. Boy, the scary part about a service like Manila is they really have all – they know where all your bodies are buried, right? Because they've got your bank login and your utilities and all your bill pay as well. That, that is true. You've got to have a little trust in them. And they have, they have um, quite a bit written up on their security and their encryption standards and things like that for people who are a little nervous about stuff like that. Well, it, it's definitely coming. I, I don't think there's any choice. I mean I remember – what was it, maybe 10 years ago when banks started putting your account information online or maybe even more recent than that? And everybody said, well, I'll never do that. I'll never put my banking stuff online. And I think now just about everybody's comfortable with the idea of logging in at Chase or Wells Fargo. Um, now, the next level of, of abstraction is where you start giving third parties access to that same information. And, you know, and I think that the people who are going to be successful are the, are the ones that, number one, are going to be very secure. And number two, I think, be able to do it in a way that makes consumers feel comfortable with it. And uh, frankly, I'm not entirely there yet with it. I mean, but but I see I see it's heading that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I should probably be a little more nervous. And why let my wife take that part? Um, there are a couple things that my wife does not let me link to Manila. For whatever reasons, um, and I'm fine with that. But, but basically, I, there are five or six bills that now that I can just pay almost automatically in one shot without having to log into six different uh, websites. And for me, I'm all about efficiency. I'm all about saving my time. My time is valuable, and I just I got tired of logging into one site, logging into another. Now I just I just have one place to go. Yeah, and then you look at like a service like Mint, which is. Um uh, help me out. Who owns Quicken? Quicken. It's, uh, no, no, it's not Quicken, Quicken owns Mint. Intuit. Intuit, Intuit. yes, that's right. That's right. So Intuit bought Mint, and so they're trying to build a platform out of that, and I suspect that they're going to be going the same way as Manila at some point, giving you more than more than the ability just to monitor your accounts through their service. Probably, um, yeah. It, Mint right now, yeah. Mint just Mint just is a receiving application. It just get it pulls the data down and gives it to you, but it doesn't it doesn't allow any manipulation. But I, I agree with you. Exactly. I, think that, I think that day is coming. And and then when you look at what Intuit has done on the business side, is there there is really a serious push out there to try and get companies who are used to QuickBooks to go to QuickBooks Online. 
you know, everything is going to be web-based and, and businesses are very uncomfortable with the idea of putting their financial information on a web-based service. I think they felt much more warm and fuzzy with it on a computer somewhere in their office, even though in a lot of cases that computer in the office is still connected to the internet and behind a firewall, that's probably not all that great. Yeah. Um, well, so it, I, I think that this is a very interesting subject as we move forward and we we get questions from listeners all the time saying, "Hey, we needed you need to do a financial show," and it's interesting because they always have a product they recommend when they when they make the request, and then we get another email the next few days saying, "You need to do a financial show, but make sure you don't include this product because it's terrible." And it happens to be the one a listener recommended two days earlier. So it, I just feel like the whole thing is kind of in flux right now. Yeah, you, you can't win. I mean, uh, you know, as soon as it's I think the Target fiasco a few months back, I think that got people really nervous about this whole digital, you know, how much security is there actually for, for our private data and, and things. And so um, it's going to be an interesting few years ahead of us to see where this goes. Look at the vector over the last year. I mean, there was the Matt Honin thing. There was the Target thing. And there the Heartbleed thing. And I look at those three events together and in each one of those, uh, people who I call muggles, you know, people out there who aren't really geeks and don't listen to shows like Mac Power Users have walked up to me and said, man, have you heard about this? I heard that, they were, you know, I think this is becoming a real thing in the collective conscious of people out there that the, the Internet is not necessarily a safe and warm and fuzzy place all the time. And I think people are finally becoming starting to wake up to the fact that you have to take real responsibility for your data if you're going to use a computer connected to the internet. In a lot of ways, I kind of view that as a good thing because I think those risks were always out there and a lot of people were blind to it. Well, this next generation of kids that's coming up that's so comfortable with technology, they're going to get burned. They're going to have their, you know, Facebook, well, not maybe not Facebook, maybe maybe their Instagram accounts hacked at some point and I think I think the next generation is going to be much more tech savvy, obviously, and they're going to be much more security savvy. I think as a large, in a larger percentage of them will be. See, I don't, I don't see that um, with my kids and with the kids I'm exposed to. I see number one that they are very savvy in terms of using this stuff and putting data out there. I don't think they're that much into privacy into their own personal privacy as an option to that. I don't think they've given a lot of thought to to computer security, at least. And I'm talking with tweeners and high school kids because uh, those are the people I see the most. Well, they, they have it now, but but I think at some point, um, especially when they start becoming teenagers and high schoolers and they start realizing that the colleges are looking at their their social media, you know, information on what's on them. I think I think it's gonna it's gonna sort of flow backwards. I think kids are gonna get a little more uh, experienced in in exactly how widely available their data is out there and how easy it is to find. And I think that'll just force a certain percentage of of uh, adults who are now becoming kids. They'll start thinking about these things a little more than what uh, you know the current population does. Yeah, I told my daughter when she first got a – I was very resistant to Facebook for my, my oldest daughter. I think she was about 14 by the time I put, we agreed to let her have a Facebook account. And I'm, I'm usually kind of a hippie dad, but with Facebook, I was very nervous about her going on there. And uh, when we finally did it, I, um, I t- had a talk with her, and I said, look, anything you put on here, your grandkids will read. So if you're going to put a picture up there of you you know, getting drunk someday – 
your grandkids are going to look at that one day and ask you about it. So think about that as you get into this online presence. You know, it's it's funny. I um I read a book the other day and there was this interesting it was a joke. It was it was it was written as a joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. It was it was one person was complaining that something they had posted on Facebook was used against them during a job interview. And then another person chimed in and said, "Well, the company I was interviewing for complained because I don't have any social media and they can't do any kind of search on me to find out who I am. So it, it it's funny that it goes both ways. You, you could have too little uh, available on you out there and maybe too much. That's an interesting angle. Now, Katie, you're, you're just putting it all out there on Facebook, right? That's your, your thing. Everything, everything. I, I am so locked down. It wouldn't, you wouldn't. I don't even post that much. I, I actually what, did a did a presentation for our local bar group on on Facebook, and and I won't get into the lawyerly stuff, but I we we did it from two perspectives. One of the perspectives that nobody in, will be interested in really is um, that it's becoming used more and more as a discovery tool for attorneys, and it's you know everything on Facebook is very discoverable with with proper um, you know subpoenas and requests to produce and and things like that, and it can be used as a great discovery tool. And then the other angle that I took because we were also presenting to a group of law students is, 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 is exactly the employer angle of, of, Hey, people are going to be looking at this and, you know, you don't want your drunken party pictures from undergrad or, or law school parties to, to be haunting you when you're, when you're out there job searching, because it's, it's a competitive job market out there. I don't really know the answer. I mean, I've been thinking about, I actually reactivated my Facebook account because I wanted to try that new iPhone app and I have, two friends, my sister-in-law and my wife. So I am not really in Facebook at this point, but uh, you know, I, it just, you just need to be aware of this stuff. And I think you do have to have some exposure to it. And frankly, I've been kind of enjoying this Google plus group for the Mac power users that we've got going. Oh, we should mention it's, it's well over 400 members now. So uh, oh, you I should need to join. definitely join our Google plus group. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I I go back and forth. I can't decide wh- where to give my my time, Google Plus or Facebook, uh, because Facebook just connects me with so many friends that I've lost track with and family members and such. And Google Plus seems to be the geeks. I most of my family and friends just haven't found Google Plus yet. Well, and it doesn't sound like Google is really um, a full believer in the product themselves. As we record this, the shows that we're actually recording a little bit early have got a trial coming up. But uh, it, it's becoming increasingly apparent that Google is shifting away from the focus on Google+. Plus. So who knows where it's going to be in six months? They seem to do that a lot. They, uh, they'll they run hard with a, a particular service for a year or 10 years, and then all of a sudden they just say, we're going to shelve it. I'd like to talk about our next sponsor, and that's 1Password, which seems kind of appropriate based on the security discussion we just kind of came out of. Um, you know, the time is right now to get yourself real powerful password support. And uh, the bad guys are getting more and more clever. No longer can you just get a napkin and write a couple passwords on it or a little black book or a Word document or a number spreadsheet. It's It just doesn't work that way anymore. Now you're going to need to get real serious passwords and you're going to need to be able to track them. And 1Password does all of that for you. You don't have to use the same password at every website. And in fact, if you do that, when you have one of these incidents like at Target or one of these other hackings that happen, these guys are going to be able to take the 1Password you've been using and and go get into other websites. With the 1Password application, you're going to make a safe and secure password for every different website, and it's going to manage it for you. 
Another thing that we get out of 1Password, though, is the ability to add these great features to help protect all of us users. And something that they've done recently that I think is just so brilliant is they've added this Watchtower service. Katie, are you familiar with the Watchtower? I am, and uh, it really opened my eyes. Yeah, so what happens is, you know, and I think the heartbleed is what really led to this, is we have these websites we visit, and who's going to know what websites are now vulnerable and are not vulnerable or have had problems in the past? I mean, you can't follow that stuff all the time. We're out there trying to make a living doing our jobs or going to school, and we're not going to keep up with it all. So what 1Password's done is they're going to take care of that for you. They've got this watchtower service that will that will look at the Internet's you know, problems, and it's going to compare that to the sites that you have logins for. If you have a problem, uh, 1Password will display a red alert at the top of any affected login. Saying, I'm sorry, hey, David. The- Did you say a red alert? I said red alert, Katie. It's not DEF CON 1. I was just, just, one. I was just checking. Alert. Okay. Yeah, I know. C- copyright Katie Floyd. So if there's a problem, though, 1Password with a website, 1Password will tell you for it. It'll give you the red alert. In fact, um, I think it would be really cool if we had a little sound of Captain Picard saying go to red alert and have the little klaxons going off. But I'll have to talk to them about that. But anyway, so you click the red alert and it, it tells you what's going on and if it's necessary to update your password for the website. So just imagine that you go to log in someplace and it's a it's a great password that you've made and you've been tracking it. You've done all, everything right. But because of something at the other end, there's a problem. But you're not aware of it. So if you go to log in, you're going to actually create issues for yourself. One password is going to be watching for you. It's going to say, hey, wait a second, Katie, you're not going to log in here. Red alert. So then you can go update the password on the website and be safe again. So not only is this helping you create and manage the passwords, it's also helping you make sure that you don't get caught in any traps that you didn't create for yourself. It's a really great idea. I, you know, I, when I heard about it, it was like so obvious. How come nobody did that before? But it never occurred to me before they did it. So this is just another example of, of the great features of owning uh, the application 1Password. The, there's a lot of smart people there. They work really hard to make an application that gives you the absolute best protection. In addition, they've done these redesigns lately of the applications, both for the Mac and the uh, iOS devices. It looks gorgeous. It operates flawlessly and now it's out there protecting you as well so go check out one password you can get it in the mac app store for 49.99 or you can go get the mac and windows bundle you know i don't know why i've got so many emails from listeners lately that are telling me they're getting the bundle you know i just forget how many of our listeners are also driving pcs so that's a really good idea you can go and they've got the application it works great on both platforms it uses dropbox so it's going to sync all your data back and forth like for instance if you've got a pc at work and a mac at home you can get both of them for this price and you're all set to go Uh, we really appreciate the support we've got from one password and even more than that we really appreciate what one password has done for the community in terms of raising awareness and when you see somebody out there that is asking you questions about security point them towards one password because it's really the way to go now katie what's the what is the website it's it's is a one password slash mpu correct uh, well, it, it, there's a long coupon code. Um, it, it's a very long link. So if you just go to our website and click on the link for 1Password over in the sidebar, you'll see them as a featured sponsor. They they rotate through. So if you refresh a few times, you'll see 1Password as a featured sponsor um, and click on that link and it will actually auto-populate a coupon code for you. All right. And 
and uh, we will take care of that. And go check it out, gang. And now is the time to get yourself covered with 1Password. James, one of the other things I had on my notes that I I wanted to talk to you about, because this is a service that I jump in and out of quite a bit, and I've been more in than out recently, and that's If This Then That. And I think it has a lot to do with the iPad app coming out for If This Then That fairly recently, you know, in the last month or so, and just made it so easy for me to browse apps and say, or, huh, that's an idea. I think I want to create a recipe with this or maybe this and maybe this and maybe I'll do this. And I think, you know, one night in the course of about an hour while I was, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV, I created a half a dozen or more if this than that recipes. And I know you're a big if this than that user. Um, could you give us tell us about that and some some things that you're using it for? Yes, I, I am a huge if this then that fan. I I'm like you. I, I think when I first discovered it, I spent a few hours um, tinkering and I ended up with, you know, a dozen or more recipes that I ended up eventually deleting some of them. But it's addictive. It really is when you can find how many services that uh, that they use or you know, how many channels, they call them channels. And you just create these little automated tasks. You know, if something happens, then do this. If I get an email from this person, put the attachment in my Dropbox folder. And um, I've been, I don't remember when I started using them or the service, but uh, I covered it, I covered it in my book. And um, I, I, I guess I could tell you guys a kind of a funny story about how I used If This Then That if you're interested. Bring it. Of course. Bring it. <laughs> well, my wife, who who she's probably going to listen to this and, and roll her eyes and get a little upset at me because I'm probably not supposed to be sharing this, but it's not that embarrassing. She she has this habit of leaving her curling iron plugged in. Uh, it's one of those old. She likes it. It's a it's a favorite of hers. It's it's not particularly uh, high tech, but she leaves it plugged in. And we get in the car and we go for a ride. And she says, "Ooh, I think I left the curling iron on." So we, you know, in the old days, we would have to just turn around, drive home, and unplug it. So she she does not have an iPhone. Wait, wait a second, James. How many times have you had to actually turn around and drive home? <laughs> Probably half a dozen. That's that's wow. a guess. Yeah, not so much anymore. Because here's what I did. You know, um, the first solution I had was uh, I bought one of these Belkin Wemo devices, and I I plugged it in, and I installed the Wemo app on my iPhone, and I would just be able to to open the Wemo app, and I would be able to look and see if it was turned on or not because it was a green button if it was turned on, and it was a it wasn't green if it was turned off, but she doesn't run the uh, the she doesn't have the iPhone and she doesn't have the Wemo app. Although um, Katie did tell me that I believe it's coming out for the Android, so that's kind of cool. But 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 what was really what I did was I basically said, okay, how can I make this easy for her? I created an if this then that recipe that basically says if I receive an email from my wife Ashley and it has in the subject line curling iron the words curling iron automatically kill the power to the curling iron it 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 uh send it belkin is one of the channels that uh that is available through if this and that and the belkin devices the wemo devices are available so you just go in i just went in and i made a rule that said if an email comes in to me on gmail with the subject line of curling iron kill the power to the curling iron and it works if she ever doubts that she's turned it off all she has to do is send me an email with curling iron in the subject line. 
Well, and I the got- reason that works is because you're using Gmail, because Gmail has the best if this than that support as an email application. A standard IMAP email, uh, at least as the last time I checked, you're not going to be able to parse a subject line. I believe you're right. Yeah, the um, the Gmail channel, they continue. It seems like they're adding something new to it about every three or four months, some some new feature. And it, it is well-developed. So you can do a lot of neat things. One of, one of the, just to give your listeners um, a heads up, the Gmail has the things called labels, uh, and those labels are a powerful way to get things done, not only in Gmail, but with if this, then that. You could, there's a, a label uh, option in one of the recipes uh, for, or in one of the uh, channels for Gmail that you can do so many things with when, when if this, then that is monitoring Gmail for a particular, uh, uh, for a particular label. Yep. Yeah. So um, here's a, a possible revamp to your rule. You know, if this, then that just added Android support. So now you can get if this, then that on your Android device and included. Well, first off, it's pretty cool Android support. So they can do things with Android that we can't do on iOS yet. Uh, here's some ideas for iOS 8, maybe. Um, but they can do things like silence the ringer when you enter a certain area or change your wallpaper or all, all kinds of things like that. But one of them, one of the if this, then that triggers that they have uh, for Android, because I know you mentioned your wife uses an Android phone, but you can also do this for iOS. Same thing works, um, is a geolocation based trigger. So you use your phone as the geo, uh, basically as the GPS. So you use your phone as the tracker. So you could set up uh, an if this, then that rule that says, once my wife leaves this location of our house, uh, cut the power to the Wemo that my curling iron's plugged into. Yeah, I, I um, that's that's on my to do list for this weekend or early next week. I'm going to find a way to, to do that and test it out. It's going to be funny to get in the. Uh, well, we won't do the car. We'll just walk away from the house and see what the distance is. But I imagine it's uh, probably what. 50 to 100 feet away from the house, it would probably pick up uh, using GPS that you've you've left the house. And, uh, yeah, I so, get I get halfway down the block and my trigger mine triggers. Yeah, Katie, what do you what do you what do you have connected to your location? What what turns off in your house when you leave? Uh, everything. I've got a couple of light switches that are connected to these um, the Belkin light switches that you can get the Wemo light switches. Okay. And I have um, several plugs. I have some that are attached to lamps, and I have one that's attached to a a fan. And um, I use one that seasonally I rotate out for for Christmas lights. And so I just have a general if this, then that rule that says, when I leave the house, turn off all my switches. I think I'm going to use that with my webcam. I have a habit of leaving the house. If we go on vacation or somewhere, I forget to plug in the drop cam, the webcam that monitors my house. And um, I could simply plug that into the Wemo and say, when my phone gets a certain distance away from the house, turn on power, and my webcam would automatically kick on, and I'd be able to monitor. That, that's I, I appreciate you letting me know about that. Yeah, I mean, there are there are all kinds of fun stuff you can you can set up with if this then that. Do you have any other cool recipes? You know, I'm, you, you put me on the spot here. I I um. A lot of the recipes that I have are, are like David said, they're related to Gmail. Um, there are certain editors who, when they uh, email me, I, I don't care where I am. I need to know that I've got an email or an attachment from them. So a lot of them are very specific to a certain person's email address or receiving an attachment 
for example, and um, I use those to send me text messages. I use If This Then That. Um, they have a message uh, channel that you can link to your, your text messaging service, and I use that a lot. I use it to send myself custom text messages to alert me when things happen. Yeah, it, yeah, it, you it know, really I just, is an... Go ahead, David. Sorry. It's just a really connected world, and if you use a service like this, it, it makes it possible to do a lot of things. It's kind of a, been a recurring theme on the show. I don't want to go into it in great length, but um, one of the really joys of If This Then That is the continuing growth of channels. There's a lot of services that I use, and usually the very first thing I do is I turn off all email notifications from services, or I put them into my Sanebox black hole. I don't want to see all that junk. I, I don't have time for it, but... Whenever I get an email from if this, then that I stop and read it because it's like, it's like opening a new gift. You know, I'm going to find out that there's a new channel in there of some new thing that's going to connect to some other thing that I didn't, wasn't able to do before. Um, I would like to see them improve the service a little bit and I would like to see them charge money. So it's something where I can kind of understand the monetization because the more dependent I become on it, the more I don't want to see it go away. You know, and, I I sorry. I um, I backed a Kickstarter recently called My Nerd. Uh, it, the E is a backwards three or a numeral three, and it's a simple little device that you connect to your garage door opener, and it allows your iPhone. There's an app that goes with it. You can open and close your garage door with this My Nerd, and it communicates either Wi-Fi or through your phone's data data uh, transmission. But what was cool was, as soon as I backed it, I sent a question to him and I said, hey, by the way, do you think you guys could make your, could contact If This Then That and add your device as a channel? And they responded immediately that they had already been contacted by If This Then That and that they are adding a channel. I mean, these guys, If This Then That, they don't sleep. I think they're constantly watching for new ways to improve their service. Well, what I'd like to see them do, what they could do to really improve it in my mind would be uh, a little more sophisticated rules, like conditional rules, like a rule with two conditions instead of just one. Um, when you look at some of the things you can do, like with the home automation stuff, and I'm not going to go there too far because we've covered that way too much lately, but there's a lot of the home automation stuff that allows you on your iPhone to set like like a Wemo, you can set multiple conditions. You know, it's between the hours of X and Y, and it's dark. Or you, know, you can have conditions. Whereas with if this then that, it's it's a one dimensional rule. You well, know, it's well they'd if have X, to then Y. They'd have to change their name to if this and this and this or this, then that. I F T A T T T. <laughs> exactly. I'm fine with that. And and uh, David, I think that I have always maintained that that is the route that they should take for monetization because. I think enough people would pay for it. I think it keeps the base level of the service free, but yet enough people would pay for it that it would make it worthwhile. I know I certainly would. Yeah, if you could if you could stack rule right, if you could stack rules and and add extra conditions, uh that that would be well worth the money in my mind. Yeah, I agree. Hey James, I want to talk about some of your favorite apps. Um but before we do that, I think we should probably talk about our last sponsor. Yeah, let's let's talk about um, Text Expander. I love, love, love Text Expander. So thanks to our good friends at Smile for their continued sponsorship of Mac Power users. So Text Expander is the the app. It is the ultimate app for Mac and now iOS that will allow you to take short little snippets of text and expand them into much longer snippets of text. So this can be anything from simple email signatures to uh, 
all the way of multi-page contracts, depending on what you want to do it. So type a few little letters, get a whole bunch of paragraphs potentially. But Text Expander has expanded functionality behind simple expanding little bits of text into much bigger bits of text. They have now uh, done things where you can customize these blocks of text. So you can create custom forms, like you can create fill-in fields where you can fill in the blank for certain fields. So uh, dear blank, uh, thank you so much for sending me blank. I'm going to use it for select one of these three options or use this field, but not this field. I use Text Expander so much for just my everyday snippet expansion, but several times a day, I also use Text Expander for expanding these much more complicated snippets where by just entering a few variables and saying, uh, yes, check this, but not this, check this, but not this, I can, with a few keystrokes, design a customized letter to somebody um, Boom, and it's it's done in about thirty seconds by just taking the time after I've take, I've I've written that letter or the same or a similar letter a few times, and taking the time to put it into Text Expander and actually customizing it. We love Text Expander on the Mac. It is an incredibly powerful app. It syncs via Dropbox, so it will sync across to all of your Macs. But there is also Text Expander Touch for iOS. And they recently came out with an update for Text Expander Touch for iOS that has a beautiful new user interface, a beautiful design. This guy named Sparky somebody did a video about Text Expander Touch for iOS, and it really has all the powerhouse features of Text Expander brought to you on a mobile device. So if you want to create snippets on your mobile device, you can now do that. If you want to start expanding snippets and then share them with others, either through Twitter, through SMS, through mail, you can now do that very easily within Text Expander Touch for iOS. If you have certain groups of snippets that you only use on the Mac and maybe you want to disable them on iOS so that you don't have to worry about accidentally triggering them, you can do that. You can rearrange and organize all of your snippets on iOS. And probably best of all, it's so much good stuff. So one of my favorite features, maybe I should say, is that they have created a developer kit and an API around Text Expander so that you can share all of this goodness with some of your favorite apps. So for example, Drafts and ByWord and other applications that I love and use every day have built-in Text Expander support. So if I start using Text Expander within Drafts and I type my Text Expander snippets, which I'm so prone to doing because I use Text Expander on all of my Macs, it's going to automatically expand inside that Drafts app or inside my ByWord app or inside any of the other dozens of apps where the developers have actually built in Text Expander support. So if you type the same thing over and over again, uh, or if you type on your Mac at all, I think you're going to find that you're going to benefit from using Text Expander. So you can go check it out over at smilesoftware.com. Click on the link for Text Expander. You can download it to your Mac. You can use it as a free trial. Try it before you buy it. Uh, if you like it, you can you can buy it from Smile. And then you can also get the iOS version over in the Mac App Store. So go check it out uh, and also watch Sparky's video. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and also, you know, congratulations to Greg and Philip and everybody at Smile for getting Text Expander Touch 2.5 out because they really made some really nice improvements. And like Katie was saying, you can really manage things on iOS now, which is you don't you don't know how much work these guys put into this because I I kind of saw behind the scenes how hard it was and it's very impressive what they've done. Um, so James. I think it's time that we talked about some of your favorite apps because you've clearly qualified yourself as the geek dad throughout the show. 
<laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I go back and forth between my Mac and my iPad. And people, people when they see my iPad, they, they're kind of surprised because I think they expect me to have, you know, a hundred apps installed on my iPad and pages and pages of me flipping and flipping and flipping to get to my, my various apps. The honest truth is I, did a, I, I knew this was coming, so I did a count. I have a total of 32 apps installed on my iPad, which is not much. Um, and that's including the ones that you know come standard with the iPad. I am very old school when it comes to my iPad. And by old school, I mean many of the apps that I've had since 2010 or 2011, they're the apps that I continue to use today. And I've mentioned some of them, Goodreader, uh, Dropbox. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm really big on Evernote. Uh, I use Evernote when I'm pitching a book idea to my editors. I use Evernote uh, by creating note, notebooks and notes, I organize my chapters and I organize my thoughts. So before I ever write a book or write a chapter, I'm collecting information into Evernote. And uh, once I've got those, those the, the data that I want and I put the proposal together and the book is accepted, then I move on to Scrivener. And if, if uh, I don't, I, I think David, you know what Scrivener is. Um, it's a, a great writing app for writers. It, it's probably, um, it is the Goliath, I think, of writing apps. Uh, everybody thinks of Word, but it's not. It's Scrivener. There, on the day that they get Scrivener out for the iPad, you're going to hear the joy and screaming of nerds all over the world. It will be loud, and it will last a long time. I, I've wondered, if, if you know of anything, David, you've got to tell me, but I've wondered when that app is going to be ported. Um, it's, it would give me an excuse to finally bring my Bluetooth, uh, you know, keyboard back out again for my iPad because I do most of my writing on my MacBook Air. But I would love to have an excuse to write my books on the iPad, uh, you know, and a Bluetooth keyboard. They're working on it. They're working, they're working on it. It's it, it's public knowledge that they're working on it, and I know they've been working on it for some time. And and it's not, you know, it's not. They're they're going to release it when it's done and it's right, but they're working on it quite hard. So I would imagine it's not going to take forever for us to see it. Well, I use. But um, well, that was really vague, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, they're working on it. Working Let me just leave it. it at that. I think David knows something. I think we should continue pressing this. He may be actually. I, I don't. I don't really know anything except I do know that that they've made progress, but. That's about as much as I know. Well, it would make sense. I, I, I don't doubt they're working on it, and, and I agree. They will release it when it is ready, and I know that they won't release it any sooner because uh, it's such a great app that I can't imagine them being – I can't imagine them releasing a, a buggy version of it. it just uh, it, it, would, it would seem strange. But I want to talk about this, uh, the guy with 30 apps guy. Now, do, do you, like, <laughs> load other apps on and, and just – you're brutal about deleting them or cause like for me, I am always, my home screen is always in flux. I am always finding better apps for different things. And I think it's partly just a way that I use to avoid doing work. Cause I'm always looking for the next great app, but my second screen is a bunch of folders and I've got, I've probably got hundreds of apps on my iPad. No, I, I really, I'm a, I'm a clean and, and people laugh at me because my Mac and my Windows computer, which I have a Windows computer and my de a desktop machine in my office, the, the, the workspaces are all clear. I might have one or two icons on the desktop. I'm a very clean person. It drives me crazy to have clutter. And so for my iPad, the I only have two screens. I flip back and forth between screen one and screen two. Screen one has a, a standard set of apps that I, I use constantly. Evernote, Dropbox, 
Pocket, Clear, Goodreader, Kindle, iBooks, and I think there's like three or four others there, and it never changes. I mean, it, I, I, I am a, I am a uh, serial deleter. I, I frequently test apps out, and if they make the, if they make the, the cut, they stay on page two. Otherwise, they get deleted immediately. I just, I don't have, I, I that's part of the decluttering part of my life. I don't like to have clutter, and um, and I, and it goes from my Mac and my iPad. Um, but um, my my current, you're gonna laugh, David. My my current app that I, I download and I delete and I down I, I put it back on and I delete it over and over and over again is is called Frots. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Uh-uh. What is it? <laughs> it's 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 Frots, F R O T Z. And if you remember back in the eighties there were these games by Infocom. They were text based games. Go left. You would type go left or, oh, or go yeah, east. Totally. And, in fact I used to- I used to write games like that in basic. Oh, I mean, they were my they were my favorite types of games. I, I grew up with them, and I loved the uh, the Infocom games especially. And so, a few years ago, I bought a like Zork, Zork, Zork a and one. Zork Two yeah. and Zork Three, and and uh, I bought a I bought a uh, collection of about forty games called Infocom. The Treasures of Infocom, I think it is, and it came on a, a, a CD, not a DVD, a CD-ROM. And I copied the contents of that to Dropbox uh, because I was worried, you know, that the the CD might get scratched. And I've kept it for a while. But I found this application about a year or so ago called Frots, and it will actually let you load. <coughs> excuse me, it will actually let you load the I, I I don't know what they call the, the the files that exist for these these text adventure games. And so. I, I'm slowly but surely working through some of the text adventure games that I never got to play when I was a kid. Because these games were like 30 and 40 bucks back then. And I couldn't convince my parents to yeah. buy me every one. So I'm, I'm playing them now, and I'm, I'm currently playing uh, Starcross. It was a science fiction one that I never got to play. And uh, it's funny. I sit in the coffee shops, and I have uh, I have paper beside me, and I'm drawing maps because the whole thing about those games was you had to sort of document, you know, where you, where you were and where you were going. And and uh, if you found yourself in a cave, you could say go north, and it would say you find yourself in a bigger cave. And so I, I'll be drawing these maps, and people will look at it and they go, "What in the world is that guy doing?" And uh, so that's the app I'm currently uh, having a lot of fun with right now. I was such a nerd kid. We used to have like graph paper maps of Zork that we would hand, we would like share with each other at school. I think I solved Zork in like three days. Uh, I think it took me about three days to do it. And when it, when I finished it, I was so sad because it was over. And uh, back then it was just Zork 1 and, and I there was no Zork 2. And I was disappointed because I knew how to beat the game. So Frots is an application that will read those those infocom files and and turn it into a game on your ipad it Interesting. is it's for the ipad i believe it's free if it's not free it's probably 99 cents but i, I have a feeling that it's a free app and uh, you just uh it, it allows you to import so you you can point it to a dropbox folder and and import in the and, and these these text adventures are all contained in one file it's called a uh, i don't remember the extension file but it's just one file per game and it's like 25 kilobytes it's it's so ridiculously small that uh I downloaded pretty much all of them to my iPad so I can play them anytime I want. And the thing was back then, 25 kilobytes was actually a pretty big file, <laughs> you know, really. Yeah, pure text. Yeah. Yeah. 
But what else you got on there? I got. Let's see. What else? I've got PDF Pen. Are you, I know you know that one. Uh, you're the yeah. you're, you're the guy who put me onto that. Uh, Paperless. That's yeah, great app. I read Paperless yeah. and I said uh, I have to find out about this PDF Pen, and so I, I bought it and I use it more than. It's so funny. I was in a coffee shop and a friend of mine was talking to me, and I got an email from my editor, and he said, "I need this contract signed and back to me today." And my friend, my friend looked at me like, "Oh, you got to go print that, huh? And sign it and, and fax it." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" I opened up PDF Pen. I dragged in my digital signature that I had scanned, and uh, I keep it on my iPad in the in the photo gallery. And I dragged the uh, signature onto the onto the signature line, and I used the text tool to enter the date. And I shrunk the signature to fit on the line, and then I clicked save, and then I exported it back to Dropbox. And um, and then I sent it back to him via Gmail. It sounds like a lot, but I did all of this in about I don't know forty five seconds. And my my friend was sitting there going, "You've got to be kidding me!" And I said, "That's how you do yeah. it. That's how you roll. You're living That's in awesome. the future, brother." Yeah. <laughs> what about on the Mac? You have any favorite apps you like on there? Like uh, what's up in your menu bar? Up in my menu bar. Oh, uh, let's see. I, I can scoot up here. Obviously, I've got ScanSnap and an antivirus, and my, I've, I, I'm I'm a member of so many cloud services like Box and Dropbox and Google, and I don't. I got rid of the Microsoft SkyDrive. It just wouldn't work very well. Um, but uh, have, have you found Bartender yet? I have not. Um, okay. uh, you like yeah, it, Bartender? Yeah. Oh, are y'all telling me I must check it out? Huh. Yeah, yeah, well, it, all it is is it's an application to organize your menu bar, but it gives you a second like menu bar that can drop down underneath. So, like, I have all my cloud services in Bartender, and and there's a setting in there you can tell it only to make it go to your main menu bar when it's active or doing something. So, for instance, I have Dropbox set to only show up in my main menu bar when it's active. So normally I don't see the Dropbox icon at all, but if I put something in Dropbox, I can see it uploading. It drops right up to the to the main menu bar. Did I describe that well, Katie? Yeah, I think you did a good job. No, I, I understood okay. that. Yeah, I followed it. Let's yeah, see. So it's great. You can load it all in. And um, so now my menu bar looks really nice. And if you're using a MacBook Air, you know that space runs out pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, I use iDisplay, you know, because I like to use my Mac or my iPad as a, a second screen. I do that quite a bit, and um, I get a lot of strange looks uh, because I prop my iPad up next to my Mac, and and they I drag things back and forth. And uh, it, it when you're when you're working on a 13-inch MacBook Air, you you know sometimes I like to have an extra screen, and uh, that's that's the app I've I've currently got running. I use a lot of um, right now. My Mac changes based on my interest and my book content. What I'm currently writing about, I'll often load a lot of software related to whatever books I'm writing. And right now, I'm writing one, uh, or I'm just finishing up one on Tinkercad. It's a it's a 3D modeling application. It's a free application for kids and and well, it's for adults. But it's to create 3D models um, on your screen. You know, you can rotate them around and look at them from all angles. And the really neat thing about it is, it can it can save a file so that you can print it in plastic to these 3D printers that um, that are all the rage right now. And so right now, I've got about six or seven CAD applications installed on my Mac just because I'm I'm learning. I'm getting really deep into CAD because I want to write a more advanced book. Uh, after I finish this beginner level book. 
Yeah, the uh, the 3D printing thing is kind of cool. Uh, to me, that's one of those technologies that I've been I'm aware of, but haven't really dug in on yet. And it's just it hasn't really got to the consumer level yet. But it seems like it gets closer and closer every time I look at it. Well, my kids love it. I have um, I have one, and uh, it's a small one, and it doesn't you know it can't print very large items. I think the maximum is about a four by four by four inch cube. Anything that can fit inside that cube, it, it can do. But my son is my seven year old son is getting really good at it. He can design some basic things uh, in these CAD applications, and then I'm able to print them out on my 3D printer. And he was really happy because um, he, he did really well in school a few, about a month or two ago, and he was very proud of, of an achievement he got. And so I came home, and he and I designed this little dog tag. It was probably about two inches long, about a, about a quarter of an inch thick. And, and I said, I said, let's design a dog tag to commemorate it. And we wrote good job on it and we printed it on the 3D printer and it came out and, you know, it's got a little hole so you can put a chain through it. And he, he clipped it to his book bag and took it to school. And, you know, the kids were like, wow, where did you get that? And it's so cool to have your kids say, oh, you know, my dad and I made it. Um, that's yeah. yeah. And just and just to back up a minute. You started that whole conversation explaining you have a seven-year-old that's designing three-dimensional objects. Doesn't that just blow you away? Uh, yeah. yeah, and it, he, I'm sure he's probably better at it than I would be at this point. Well, this is the same seven-year-old that was you know, three when the iPad came out, and he used to sit on my lap and watch me play with this new toy of mine. And eventually I got comfortable letting him sort of sit beside me, and he, he, he took up swiping and pinching and zooming. I mean, that came to a three-year-old, that came very natural. It was so funny, he'd walk up to our TV and he'd use his finger and try to swipe the screen of the TV to change it. We used to laugh about that. But, um, well, but- I, I just remember like watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes, Katie, I actually watched it. Okay. And, and they would fabricate parts for their spaceship. Uh, yeah, right with the replicator. Their, yes. And, and me thinking at the time that, that that that's clearly where we're going to be someday. But I figured I'd be worm food by the time that was even possible. And now when you look at it, I mean, it's that we're already almost there. There's a there's a well, compa- they're taking matter and molecules, and but we're pretty yeah, we're pretty close. We're, we're getting there. That, there. There's a company. I, I think it's funny that Katie really wanted to go into that deeper. <laughs> I right. could I could explain it to you, but it would take a lot of time. Would it involve the word dilithium? The dilithium is for the engines. That has nothing to do with matter replication. And you can't you, sure? rep, you can't replicate complex you, material yeah, like they, dilithium crystal. That is why they got stuck in Star Trek Four, and you know they almost didn't make it back. They had, that's why Chekhov had to go steal the stuff from the nuclear vessels. That, no, that's the one with the whales, right? Oh that gosh. is the run with the whales. I'm hanging up. <laughs> no, aren't I right? Isn't that the one with the whales? Yes, yes. That's the, George and Gracie yeah. are their names. Yes, the Yellow Jackets did that song. By the way, one of my favorite fusion bands. Okay, I think I, I derailed us again. <laughs> so, so what else are you making with this 3D? How much did it cost to get into 3D printing? You know. Um, Ten years ago, a 3D printer would have cost you a hundred grand, and then five years ago, they were down to two or three thousand. Now you can get one for about three hundred dollars, and it's uh, a friend of mine out actually out in California. Uh, his company is called PrinterBot.com, and it's missing an e, so it's P-R-I-N-T-R.B-Bot.com. 
he uh, he sells one called the simple. That's the name of it. It's the simple, and the wood version is three hundred dollars, and that's the one I got, and uh, it it works great. I mean, it's you're not going to be printing artificial you know noses or ears and and anything medical related, but but it can do it can do very interesting jobs. You can replace. Uh, one of my friends has one, and he printed a, a a clip broke off, I think, of in his car, some little clip, and he was able to get some measurements on it and recreate it in a in a three D modeling app, and then he printed the replacement on his three D printer, and it took him a couple tries to get it exactly the way he needed it, but one but but after two or three tries, he had it, and he put it in his car, and boom, he fixed the problem, and it, I think he rem- I think I remember him telling me that that part was going to be like seventy five dollars. And and you know he would have had to order it special, and he printed it for about thirteen cents worth of plastic. Wow! Now, does it does it print dilithium crystals? It does not. That's oh another, my gosh! That's another three hundred years. Uh, unfortunately, how about, Earl, well, how about Earl Grey hot? It, does it, it print Earl Grey? It will not print in liquid, unfortunately. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be kind of dangerous. But you know, there's a company in Europe that the rumor right now, and I, I'm pretty sure I saw a video of this, and you could probably Google it. There's a company in Europe that has developed a machine, apparently, that can print uh, large car bodies, like unibodies. Um, oh, that makes where, sense. Where, and I don't know if they're if these are for prototypes or actual on the road. I imagine they're they're prototypes, but they're you know they're, so that they can make a fake car and test it out in a wind tunnel, I guess, and it'll print yeah. something that large, which is amazing to me. Well, and well, I, I, I'm definitely going to play with one at some point. I, I'm just waiting a little bit longer. Well, it, the it's one com- the, the simple does work with a Mac. That was a big thing for me because so many of the 3D printers that I looked at, the software to control them was Windows, and there there is a particular controller software called Repetier that a lot of 3D printers are using, and it does work with the Mac. So all of a sudden, I was able to take my Mac out into the garage and connect it to the 3D printer and print, and uh, that was that was that was a nice surprise. Very cool. We've gone over our limit, guys. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, that's true. But I, I get very excited when I start talking about the lithium crystals, and I always have to, you know, stop and teach Katie about this stuff, and it, it get, can get very tense sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, I guess we should stop. But, uh, but James, thanks so much for coming on the show, and everybody, go over to geekdad.com. James has got some great content there. He's not the only contributor, as he was saying. It's a lot of fun. As a geek dad, I have to say that I really enjoy reading your website, and you guys point me to some great things I can do with my kids. Even as my kids get older, we're all still kind of, you know, a bunch of geeks in my family at heart. And um, James, where else can people find you? Well, my personal website is jamesfloydkelly.com. I, there's so many Jim Kellys in this world that when I started writing, they said, look, you can't write under Jim Kelly. And I just went with my full name, which is James Floyd Kelly. So that's uh, that's my website. That's what my books are written under. And then uh, my byline is all over the place with various sites. So I appreciate you guys inviting me to uh, to come and talk. I've listened to, to, to the show. David, I've read Paperless. I've read read your other many of your other books i'm a big fan uh of the show and mick sparky so um it's kind of a nice highlight to to be able to come on your show and and talk with you guys and and what are you on twitter james uh james floyd kelly is my twitter handle okay and and you can find us at macpowerusers.com where you can find some lovingly crafted show notes uh, you can also send us feedback to feedback at macpowerusers.com. 
Uh, on Twitter, we're at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>